Okay, Paul. Got a picture. We talk about Paul a lot. Um, well, it is a mosaic from a couple of thousand years ago, probably, well, after Paul died, but yeah, maybe 1,500 years ago. We talk so much about him in Christian circles, and uh, I guess he is responsible for writing many of the books uh, of what we call the New Testament. And it's uh, extraordinary the insights that God gave him which have done much to shape our theology. In addition, he was a, is a great traveller, as we saw in the video in the kids' talk. Walked and walked and walked. He took the gospel through Asia Minor and Greece. Indeed, we could say that God used Paul to bring the gospel to us because if it were not for Paul taking the message out beyond Jerusalem, Israel and Judea, it would not have reached the other parts of the world. God used him in a very mighty way. So Christianity was not just a strange Jewish sect, but became a global religion because of the perseverance of Paul and others like him. But what else do we know about this man, Paul? The New Testament gives snippets about his life before his conversion, which allows us to gain a better understanding of this man who was used by God in such extraordinary ways. First, he was a Roman citizen by birth. He was born in Tarsus, so he was not born in Israel, Judea. He was born in Tarsus, which is in Asia Minor, into a devout Jewish family in about 5 BC. So he's contemporary with Christ. Tar Tarsus at the time was one of the largest trade centres on the Mediterranean coast. It was also a city renowned for its university. Paul was proud of his heritage. We read in uh, Philippians 3.5 that he referred to himself as circumcised on the eighth day to the people of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. Indeed, he was probably the son of a Pharisee because he says in Acts 23, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. We also know from his own recollection in, in Timothy that he came from a, a family of religious piety. He says, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. He was an educated man tells us in Acts, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I stunted under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as, many, as, as any of you are today. Now, Gamaliel was, had a rabbinical school in Jerusalem and it's regarded now as probably the greatest rabbinical school of all time. So he didn't go to some mediocre Z-grade college and university. We know he had an occupation. In Acts, he tells us, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, the emperor, had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them because he was a tent maker as they were. He stayed and worked with them. 
So this is how he met Priscilla and Aquila, and they became partners in the gospel, as he tells us in Romans. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Paul, we're told in Acts by Luke, had a self-confessed zeal for Judaism and was present at the stoning and death of Stephen. He was the first Christian martyr. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul, I'm known as Paul, now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution rose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. We know Paul was converted. He was converted originally called Saul, became known to us as Paul. And this has to be one of the most significant about-faces in all of history. It occurred when he was probably between 27 and 31 years old, and he had a dramatic reverse in his focus as he was confronted by the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road. He wasn't seeking Christ. He made no choice about the matter. Christ sought him in a very, very profound way. He turned from being, having a violent and determined persecution of the fledgling church to being a vigorous and persistent messenger of the truth. As we're seeing, Paul travelled constantly, although sometimes he would spend a considerable amount of time in one place, such as three years in Ephesus and so on. But he had no postal address. I'm sure he didn't have a mortgage. He probably had a few possessions, probably a backpack which was full of sandals. Um, his work was supported partly by his occupation as a tent maker, but mostly through the support of Christians. Paul was also convinced of his apostolic appointment. As he says in Galatians, for God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. After his conversion, Paul spent the rest of his life, nearly 40 years, proclaiming the truth. And we see, read in Acts 13, 26 to 39, a pretty fair example of the message that he was preaching wherever he, met, he went. It is worth reflecting on this message. Fellow children of Abraham, notice he addresses the Jews first, but then goes straight into, and you God-fearing Gentiles. That's us. It is to us, both groups, the world, that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognise Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. 
Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. For in many, for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will be never subject to decay. As God says in another psalm, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. And it is also stated elsewhere, so you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served his, God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. decayed. <clears throat> but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. We could probably end the sermon there. That's the essence of the gospel. Our sin... God's grace through Christ. As I say, his missionary journey probably went for about 40 years. Uh, he's said to have died in Rome. We have no evidence for how he died, but the tradition says that he was beheaded by the emperor. And today, in the reading that Steve brought to us, we're talking about just two cities, Thessalonica and Berea. Uh, Thessalonica is still present. It's known as Thessaloniki. I hope that's good enough Greek for you, Tasso. Uh, it's in Greece, and a little bit south of it is a town called Berea. Oh, we've got the map. Wonderful. They're both in Greece, uh, north of Athens. So you'll see Thessalonica, where the arrow is then, and then Berea is about 70 kilometres, just, yep, up a bit more, up above Mount Olympus. Yep, that's it, Berea. So the two towns are very close together, about 70 k's apart, and then south, of course, is Athens. So that's the little bit we're talking about today. His reception in these two places, so close together, couldn't have been more different. Thessalonica, the city of expulsion. It's a coastal city north of Athens. It was a great seaport. It was very prosperous. Loads of sailors, it was licentious, there were probably a number of red light districts in the town and this was the city from which he was expelled. Paul did his usual thing, as we read in that uh, first uh, part of Acts in, in, in his sermon, he went straight to the synagogue, that's where he always went, he went there first, where he spoke for three weeks in a row on the Sabbath. And it says he reasoned with the Jews from the scriptures, that is the Old Testament. He took them back to the documents. He explained, he proved. 
And there were some Jews convinced and a larger number of Gentiles. But despite his rational arguments, there were Jews who were jealous and they clearly didn't want this new message of Jesus as Saviour and Lord to be preached in their city. Okay, what's the solution? Well, you get a rent a crowd of local thugs and start a riot. That always got the Romans going. The problem was that this group of hooligans couldn't find Paul or Silas, his travelling companion, and so they went to poor Jason's house. Now, Jason was a Christian who was hosting in Thessalonica, so he gets this crowd of thugs outside his house wanting uh, Paul and Silas. And as was read in Acts 17, Steve brought to us, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here and Jason has welcomed them into his house. Well, actually, these things were kind of paying Paul a bit of an unintended compliment as to the effectiveness of God's message. They were saying that this message has a radical impact on the world and nothing seems the same. If it was, they wouldn't have been trying to get rid of him. They were acknowledging God's power to change lives and Paul's transformation was probably the most extraordinary example of this that we have recorded in scripture. But now the thing that really could clinch the local authorities, that, that would really set them on their way, Acts 17, they are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Isn't there a bit of an echo of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the leaders of the law and Jesus going to Pilate? They didn't appeal to scripture. They appealed to his treason. And this is what was happening here. This crowd is tantamount to accusing Paul of Silas of treason. The Romans took a threat to the emperor very seriously. It could end in execution. Generally, the Romans were fairly quiet bystanders. Although they controlled a vast empire... They let most people groups do their own thing so long as there was no trouble. They didn't particularly care what people believed, but when public order was disrupted by riots, they came down with an iron hand. Insulting the emperor was a capital offence. However, even this particular statement, calling Jesus a king, this treasonous statement to the Romans, was a kind of compliment. They were asserting, although they didn't know it, a truth. Jesus is king. Who says God doesn't have some humour? The solution for Paul was to leave Thessalonica. And although he'd only spent a few short weeks there, he'd preached three times, he wished he could have taught them more and he was able to. He did this in uh, the first letter to the Thessalonians, which is believed to probably be the first letter he ever wrote to a congregation of Christians that he'd uh, established. So what did they do? They left under the cover of darkness, they left Thessalonica at night, and they walked the 70 kilometres southwest to Berea. We should have some pictures of Berea here. In Berea, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. 
and under this plaque, which is in Berea, it says, The word of God is the power. Neither hell nor sin gainsay. Fruit and blessings abound in that life where it holds sway. There's another one of Paul in uh, Berea holding the scriptures, uh, a, a memorial to his work there uh, with two other very memorable people sitting there that you may recognise. In Berea, different reception, this was an examination town. The city, this city critically reviewed Paul's claims. Next 10, uh, we read, on arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Here he does the same thing again, straight to the synagogue, straight to where uh, God's covenant people from the Old Testament were meeting. And he went to this Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of a more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So this experience in Berea could not have been more different than Thessalonica. There was not the rejection and expulsion. The Bereans received the word with all readiness and they searched the scriptures. They went back to the source document to see if Paul was telling them the truth. They searched the scriptures, they searched daily, they searched to convince themselves of the truth. These people had open, inquiring minds. And as a result, the Holy Spirit convicted many of them of the truth of Paul's message and they came to believe. But here's an amazing thing, 70 kilometres away, these Thessalonians were still fuming. They were still obviously annoyed by Paul and Silas. So what did the thug group do? The thugs came from Thessalonica down to Berea to stir up trouble there. Now, that was a 140k round trip for them, so they really were peeved. But Paul was helped by Berean Christians to escape and he travelled on to Athens. And we'll hear more about that in coming weeks. But this is the nature of the gospel, isn't it? For some, it is the word of eternal life achieved by Christ's horrific death on a cross and then subsequent resurrection. But for others, the gospel is the stench of death. It confirms that God is a just God who judges and we all fall under that judgment. Remarkably, our God He's also a God of grace and mercy, and we see this in Christ. Then we come to the part where I think it's really Luke exalting us through Paul's messages to these churches and his travels, something for us. So it's an exhortation, not an exhortation, and it's to us and not to you if you've been reading the order of service. There is a lesson for us in the differing reactions of the uh, hearers of Paul's message. For some, as I've said, it is the life-giving message that God intends it to be. But others just saw it as the death sentence. 
Over the centuries, many have tried to squash the Christian message. The danger for us in Australia is not yet, I hope, ever, but not yet physical abuse, but irrelevance. We have God's word and the Holy Spirit within us to live lives purified by the blood of Jesus and with our focus now on heaven where we can stand before the very throne of God before the sacrifice of Jesus. But we sense that our society sees us as irrelevant. But let me tell you, we had dinner last night with some people who worship at St John's Cathedral in Parramatta. And one of the people, Phil, said to me, I have one eye on the pulpit and one eye on the door. You know why? Because ISIS have propaganda in the streets of Parramatta. And he said, we haven't had a terrorist explosion here, but we have had a pro-ISIS person kill an accountant outside the police station in Parramatta. So he's living now with his eye on the front door. We've never had to do that. We think we worship here in impunity from the people out there. They think we're irrelevant and harmless, but there are some out there that may not think that. And it made me think last night just how dangerous is our message. Paul makes it clear that God's message, though, is for all people. In Acts 13, 47. For this is what the Lord commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus came not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. This is the greatest message of all time. We can once again have relationship with God and God himself has enacted this restoration. Paul had a deep and passionate commitment to the message. We've got to remember what that message is. Jesus succinctly puts it in John 14. Jesus says there, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is a very dangerous statement. We can see how this makes a number of challenges for us. First, we should pray that we have the same attitude and commitment as Paul. It would be challenging, but in a kind of weird way, a bit of an encouragement, if we had insults hurled at us by our community. And it's starting to happen now. We've been called bigoted, irrelevant, people that believe in a myth, a legend. We're even told that Jesus never existed. But what if we were accused of turning the world upside down, as the Thessalonians were? It would mean that God's word through us, was having an impact. Our lives were threatening the people out there that we live and work and relate to, work amongst and relate to. Jesus does turn the thinking of the power structures of the world around. 
He's not really turning them around. He's actually putting them in their correct relationship to God. Look at what Jesus says about wealth and power. From Luke. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yield an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will stir my surplus, store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. What's God's response? But God said to him, you fool, could be translated, you idiot. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for, with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. A man with much wealth we might look up to, but such a man is called a fool by Jesus. A fool because he was to die that very night. And what good does all that wealth do to him? Absolutely nothing. Two, we need to have the courage and conviction that Christ is Lord. We say it. We need to have the courage about it. Be totally and thoroughly convicted by it. This simple message has landed many Christians in jail over the centuries and many have been killed and are being killed today, maybe as we meet here this morning, for making this statement. Remember those Coptic Christians who were beheaded not more than two years ago as they died, as the blade was coming down, they shouted out, Jesus is Lord. Today, we just get we're bigots, homophobes and some other derogatory things. But what does Jesus say about us with that message? In Matthew, he says, You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus, uh, sorry, Paul, Jesus was persecuted too. Paul was persecuted by many as we've We'll read in uh, all his missionary journeys. But he kept on persevering with the message and many came to believe that Jesus is Lord because of his perseverance, the Holy Spirit working through that. Thirdly, we need to be prepared to stand shoulder to shoulder with Paul and Silas and our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world today to proclaim the radical message of the gospel. The message that we all sin, we've all strayed from God, we all feel we know best how to conduct our lives, we all rebel. But God himself has reached down to us as Christ, just as he reached down to Paul and turned his whole life around. God reaches down to us in Christ and Christ bears our sins as, he's, as he dies on that cross. And in doing that, he turns the world the right way up. Fourthly, we need to be courageous 
as we engage in the moral debates in our society. They are raging in the media at the moment. We know what they are. I'm not going to amplify them for you. Just open the newspaper, turn on the radio, watch the television. The opportunity we have is enormous. Our job is to proclaim the truth in love. God, through the Holy Spirit, will do the convicting of others. We are called to proclaim the message. Are we willing to stand up and be counted? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Paul and his travelling companions who, despite persecution, continued to march through Asia Minor and Greece proclaiming the truth that Jesus is Lord, that he has died for our sins, he has been raised from death and he sits at your right hand in glory and that if we, if we believe in him, that we will be standing before that throne in heaven, that we have the message of eternal life and no one can take that from us. For we know that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and no one will come to him to you but through Jesus. Help us to have the courage of the conviction that we profess here as we go out and now live our lives the rest of the week. We pray this in Christ's great and glorious name. Amen.